Welcome to Head & Neck Innovations, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals exploring the latest innovations, discoveries, and surgical advances in otolaryngology head and neck surgery. Thanks for joining us for a new episode of Head & Neck Innovations. I'm your host, Paul Bryson, director of the Cleveland Clinic Voice Center. You can follow me on Twitter at Paul C. Bryson, and you can get the latest updates from Cleveland Clinic Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery by following at CLE Clinic HNI. That's CLE Clinic HNI. I'm joined again today by Dr. Martin Brodsky, section head of speech language pathology here at Cleveland Clinic, to continue our discussion on speech language pathology and speech and swallowing disorders. If you haven't listened to our previous episode, please be sure to give it a listen. Well, I wanted to change gears a little bit, and I wanted to get more information from you on some of the research programs that you've developed and plan to translate here and what you see as the opportunities here for research in speech-language pathology. So I'll turn it over to you. Can you share with us what, you know, what are your sort of core research interests and, and the opportunities that you hope to, to grow and expand here? Okay. It's very difficult for me to give up the previous work that I've done in laryngeal injury and swallowing that is associated with intubation in the ICU. It's a definite passion of mine. I kind of stumbled across it a little bit in that K grant that I told you I had. So, you know, the brief history is that I was funded on the, the K grant from NIH, and it was all about getting ahead of swallowing disorders and more specifically aspiration before the patient is extubated. You know, in my not too distant history prior to that, I saw a number of patients, I scoped a number of patients and we saw the laryngeal injury that was occurring. Didn't pay a lot of attention to it and neither did the literature in any form. But it was so apparent of what was going on that it just simply couldn't be ignored. I can tell you on that study specifically of the 32 patients that came into it, I think all but one patient had laryngeal injury post-extubation. And you know, and for our, for our listener, let's, let's kind of tease out what's laryngeal injury mean to you. And, you know, I certainly see laryngeal injury after a long hospitalization or an intubation yeah. at times. So, you know, what, what, what exactly were you looking at? So initially, I was simply looking for cuts, bruises, ulcerations, granulation tissue. Motion impairment, perhaps. Motion impairment came into it. Mm-hmm. You know, you always, as a speech-language pathologist, we think about the six cranial nerves involved with swallowing, right? One of the cranial nerves, of course, is the recurrent laryngeal nerve from the vagus. And motion is a big thing. If you can't close the airway, you can't be expected to save the airway from anything getting into it. So it's, it's always a big focus. And we think more along the lines of paralysis than we do anything else. Paralysis is rare. It's really rare. It's certainly more common after a cardiac surgery. But after a general medical intubation, not really there. It's very, very rare. What's more common is stenosis, more common, uh, maybe some neuromuscular problems, maybe a lag cord, maybe some edema keeping the cords from moving as well as they normally would. What about laryngopharyngeal sensation after an intubation or or a prolonged intubation? 
Yeah, that's that can be quite altered. It's interesting because if you take a look at the literature, and I find this fascinating, these numbers keep on coming up. And unfortunately, it's not predicted, uh, and it's not predictable. If you think about stroke, 50% of patients are going to aspirate. And 50% of them are going to silently aspirate. So about 25% will silently aspirate of the ones who are aspirating, right? Interestingly enough, it seems to be about the same for intubation. The numbers are quite similar. So right now, the literature is kind of pointing in the direction, almost a self-fulfilling prophecy in that we kind of knew this all along, but we needed the data to prove it. And it's really, at least in part, about the size of the endotracheal tube. The larger the tube, the more likely you're going to aspirate and the more likely you're going to silently aspirate. So what appears to be the cutoff, and we've seen at least two or three studies say this right now, the study we're working on will maybe be the fourth if somebody doesn't beat us to the punch, is basically the cut point is about 7.5 and 8.0 tubes. If you're at a 7.5 or lower, you have immediately decreased the risk of aspiration post-extubation. If you are at 8.0 and higher, you have significantly, statistically, increased the risk for those patients. Now, you know, I like to say, why are we putting a garden hose in places where straws should live? Okay. Right. It's hard. How do we, uh, you know, as we read our own literature, there's a lot of agreement, you know, certainly in my own practice with airway stenosis or motion issues of the vocal folds, things like that. I, I, you're preaching to the choir, <laughs> you know, uh, what strategies have you seen and what, what strategies do you have to socialize some of these findings to our colleagues in other disciplines where they might be the, the providers placing the tube or, or the proceduralists or intensivists that are, you know, sort of at the bedside caring for these critically ill patients? I, it, it's interesting you asked the speech-language pathologist this question. Because by the time we typically find these patients, the patient's already intubated and we're dealing with the aftermath. We are definitely not on the front end where the respiratory therapist or the intensivist is asking, give me the number eight tube. That is not the case. In fact, the speech-language pathologist is nowhere at the bedside when the patient is crashing. So really from where I stand as a referral from intensivists, a referral from any physician, basically, is I can educate. And that's what I've spent a lot of time doing over many, many years. And colleagues of ours and me and many others have spent a lot of time talking to intensivists, respiratory therapists, anesthesiologists, surgeons, the people, uh, even uh, the emergency department physicians and paramedics who are still placing tubes. We're trying to get through to these folks that smaller tubes are better and that you know, I, we continue to hear the same arguments. Now, I, I may sound like I'm getting on a soapbox here, so pull me down if you feel I'm getting there. One of the biggest arguments that I hear all the time is, but we're anticipating a bronchoscopy on this patient. 
we need the number 80 tube. And I'm still saying to myself, why? It's a half millimeter. Why do you need the eight when the 7.5 will do? Yeah. Just dog, I, dogma. I don't get it. Yeah, it's just dogma. Okay. Yeah. The other thing that I've heard is that there are very specific protocols, vent protocols. When you're in the ICU, if you have this particular patient whose height and weight is X, and you have this tube that's Y, the vent settings are Z. It's very protocol driven. My point to that, not to sound ridiculous, is there are at least three buttons on the ventilator. The one that controls the oxygen, the one that controls the airflow, and the one that controls the pressure. Can't they individually be changed? They, they probably can. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think, you know, it, it comes back to the question, really, of really wanting to let go of what we've always done and embrace the things that will improve patients' lives foreseeably. And, and, I, and I commend you, you know, part of that journey of educating and exploring has been some of the multidisciplinary nature of your work. And for looking to perhaps change dogma and change sort of these rote behaviors, it's sort of bringing these clinicians and intensivists into the research fold. Because I, I think what you'll find is that they're also curious about it. And uh, the conclusions and, and things like that are often surprising. And, and, and it has a cascading effect. I think if, you know, when they're already in the mix and they are in the research program and protocols. So, you know, I, I think that's, that's very exciting for our group as you get your program underway. I, and, and it's very exciting for me. I, I can tell you almost without exception, I, I'd be willing to say without exception, there has been a lot, there may have been hesitancy, but there's a lot of enthusiasm and there's a lot of people backing this work. And I've been very fortunate through the years that I was at Johns Hopkins to be able to work with those collaborators and for them to see the vision and for them to be able to help us move forward in the direction of advancing the science to improve patient outcomes. I expect no less here at Cleveland Clinic. And I've already had a very positive response from the physicians, including yourself, by the way, for everybody to get on board and to continue this vision just simply in a different facility. You know, Cleveland Clinic is one of the leaders in healthcare across the world. Why can't we do it here? This would be a great opportunity. And, and I know I'm already working with colleagues who are very excited and, and want to move forward along these lines and make changes and, and improve patient lives. I Agree. It's a very exciting time. We're, we're glad you're here, and we're, we're certainly looking forward to the future of our uh, dysphagia program and looking not only on the inpatient side, but the outpatient side and, and helping define, you know, the outcomes that matter and understanding the injury mechanisms that can be modified. It's very exciting. I, you know, it's a little bit intimidating because the, the work ahead of me is exponentially larger than what's behind us. We're kind of cutting new ground here. Uh, and I'm just not sure what to expect. Well, I think you can expect a lot of collaboration and a lot of people that are invested in, in your and the team's success. That's awesome. I look forward to it.
Thank you again, Dr. Brodsky. I've really enjoyed our multi-week discussion, and I'm excited about your ongoing research in laryngeal injury. As a reminder to our listeners, for more information on speech therapy at Cleveland Clinic, please visit clevelandclinic.org speechtherapy. That's clevelandclinic.org speechtherapy. And to speak with a specialist or submit a referral, please call 216-444-8500. That's 216-444-8500. Dr. Brodsky, thanks for joining Head & Neck Innovations. Thanks for listening to Head & Neck Innovations. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website at clevelandclinic.org forward slash podcasts. Or you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic experts in otolaryngology, head and neck surgery on our Consult QD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org forward slash head and neck. Thank you for listening and join us again next time. Thank you.